You're listening to the Hiccups in History podcast, hosted by a very tired college student. This episode was mastered by Trey DeFalco. Today's episode of the Hiccups in History podcast is dedicated to my father. Keep fighting, Dad. I hope you enjoy the episode. The continent of Australia is known around the world as the home of a large number of creatures seemingly designed to kill you. Crocodiles, venomous snakes, box jellyfish, platypus, giant huntsman spiders that are literally big enough to eat a possum. The list is seemingly never-ending. And yet, in the face of these numerous dangers, the greatest threat to the Australian farmers in 1932 was the emu. Yes, the majestic emu, mascot of the Liberty Mutual Insurance Company, was once the terror of the Australian continent. A terror so great that the Australian government waged war against them in defense of the farmers of the outback. But before we can dive into this clash of titans, we must first take a step back and set the scene for this climactic showdown. Following the end of World War I, the Australian government found itself unable to support the large military it had amassed to aid the Commonwealth's war efforts in Europe and in the Middle East. To solve this problem without flooding the continent with disgruntled, unemployed ex-soldiers, the government issued a grant of land to over 5,000 soldiers for them to farm on. The land grant equaled to about 90,000 hectares, which seems like a lot of land, 90,000. But then you ask, what is a hectares? Well, it's a metric unit of measurement equating to about 2.47 acres. So 90,000 hectares is roughly equivalent to around 220 22,394 acres of land, or roughly 350 square miles. So a good chunk of land, but not nearly enough land to allow over 5,000 ex-soldiers to farm on good, workable land. To ensure that everyone at least got some amount of land, the government began handing out land on the Perth of Western Australia. Very wild land. Land owned and occupied by the emu. Issues began to arise with the onset of the Great Depression. You see, much of the land which was given to the ex-soldiers was not the best land in the world. Much of the soil was poor in quality, and as a result, it was unable to yield a good harvest. The government promised wheat subsidies and other aid to the farmers, but due to the Depression, little to no aid ever materialized, leading to much strife amongst the new farming communities. And then, in the fall of 1932, the emus invaded. In the past, the emu had been declared protected by the Game Act of 1874. However, in 1922, they were declared a vermin and a nuisance, and bounties were placed upon them, leading to thousands of emus being slaughtered by those in the fringe areas of the Australian West. For a time, this seemed to be enough to keep the emu population under control and protect farmland from them. That was until 1932, when the regions of Campion and, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but Walgulin, roughly 20,000 emus blitzed the farmland in those areas, consuming and trampling acres upon acres of valuable wheat, causing farmers pain and panic at the loss of their crop during an already horrible depression. The reason for this sudden onslaught of feathered foes upon the unsuspecting outback farmers was due in large part to the cultivation of the farmland itself. In order to farm properly, the farmers had to clear out land and redirect waterways. 
So wide, open, flat land, plentiful water, and fresh, soon-to-be-harvest crops turned the wild outback into a buffet table ripe for the plundering in the eyes of the emus. And, thanks to the oversight of the Australian government, this proverbial outback wheat house, if you will, was placed smack dab in the middle of emu post-mating season migration paths. Those thousands of emus which had been hunted and killed earlier that year were actually heading inland from the coast to mate. Having watched flocks of their feathered fellows felled by frightening firearms, the flustered, fleet-footed, flightless fowl fornicated and focused on flocking with frosty upon farms and fields for a feathery feast. Now numbering around 20,000, the emus descended upon the farms, their numbers too vast for the traditional rifles to make a dent in the invasion's numbers. And, unlike in previous years where the migrations would have simply passed through the area and marched its way onto the coast, the emus found the area much to their liking and decided to turn their invasion into an occupation. Though these farmers were ex-soldiers and crack shots, the sheer speed and number of emus, coupled with the lack of sufficient ammunition, led the farmers to travel to Canberra and demand that the government take action. A bit taken aback by the request to mobilize the army against a group of flightless birds, the administration did see a PR need to send a task force, big air quotes on that one, to deal with the birds and show that the government was doing something to aid the veterans during this trying time. So, Major G.P.W. Meredith, commander of the 7th Heavy Battery, was appointed to lead the task force. Again, big air quotes. He was joined by Sergeant McMurray and Gunner O'Halloran. Both men were armed with two Lewis machine guns and 10,000 rounds of ammunition. Joining them was also apparently a filmmaker assigned to film the hunt. I was able to find and watch the documentary of the emu war produced by this accompanying film crew. And, well... I don't mean to be mean, but if they were trying to go for a subtle propaganda-slash-PR approach, they kind of dropped the ball on that one. I encourage you all to watch it. You can find it online, and it's only a little over a minute long. In fact, pause this podcast right now, go on Google, type in Emu War Footage, and click on the video titled Western Australia Makes War on Emus. Go ahead and watch it. Again, it's only like a minute long. I'll wait. Did you watch it? Good. Now you have an idea of what the combat of this history-changing conflict looked like. Anyway, the first engagement between the task force, and I cannot stress the size of the air quotes, and the emus yielded a casualty count of around 200 dead for the emu, and one very bruised shoulder and probably permanent hearing loss on the part of the Australian military. All in all, a good day's work for Meredith and his men. All told, this first campaign would yield around 300 enemy casualties and a declaration of a good job by Meredith and the local paper. Though the war seemed to be going well, anti-war sentiments would begin to brew and some in Parliament came to deride Meredith's expedition, calling it ineffective and a farce. The Prime Minister and Minister of Defense would have to justify the conflict before an opposition party forming around the representative Harold Thornby. Under pressure from Parliament, the Prime Minister ordered Meredith and his troops to withdraw from the front line, ceding ground to the emu and putting the war effort on the back foot. All seemed lost when, in spite of the opposition movement brewing in the Australian Parliament, Meredith and his men would be ordered back out into the field for the rest of the month to continue to combat the emu. 
As the war raged on, it became clear that the early successes of the war had shown false hope for a swift end. This is due in large part to the speed and chaotic movements of the emu. It was reported by Meredith that, quote, Each mob has its leader, who keeps watch while his fellows busy themselves with the wheat. At the first suspicious sign, he gives the signal, and dozens of heads stretch out of the crop. A few birds will take fright, startling a headlong stampede for the shrubs. The leader always remains until his followers have reached safety. This first-hand account is a clear example of the kinds of emu battle tactics which give them an edge when combating the machine guns of the Australians during this conflict. By December of 1932, Meredith and his men were forced to retreat, and the Prime Minister declared an end to hostilities. The war was over. The emus had won. The administration would declare that the expense of the war was far too high. Not enough emus had been killed to justify the spending. Supposedly, only one emu was killed for every ten bullets fired, an efficiency rate far too low to justify further conflict. The farmers would try multiple times to get the government to reignite the war with the emus, but the administration knew to do so would be folly. They had neither the funds nor troops to properly win the war. And, deep down, they knew the truth. The emu could not be beaten in battle. The emu's victory would be cemented in history by the fact that, alongside the kangaroo, the emu stands tall, proud, unbeaten upon the Australian coat of arms. Thank you for listening to the Hiccups in History podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show.